Welcome to the Legally Sound Smart Business Show, your weekly look at legal news and questions in the business world. Here are your hosts, Nasser Pasha and Matt Stahl. All right, welcome to our podcast. My name is Nasser Pasha. And I'm Matt Stop, two attorneys here with Pasha Law, practicing in California, Texas, New York, and Illinois. And this is where we cover business in the news and give our legal twist to that news. And today we are going to really focus on a subscription industry. Pretty much every service product now you can get on a subscription basis. And we're going to do the ultimate legal breakdown on privacy, data protection, and terms and conditions. So if you really love the law, this is for you because we're going to bore you to death. <laughs> yeah. And like you said, I mean, there, you know, when people think of subscription based things, I think at least for me, the first thing that comes to mind is kind of that subscription box model where you get an actual delivery of goods every, every month, but it's, it's way more than that. And, you know, just think about any, I, I, I can't imagine there's one listener who doesn't have at least one subscription-based service, like a Netflix or anything, anything like that. I mean, it's just our Amazon account, you know, it's very prevalent and it's pretty wide reaching at this point. It's just, there's a lot of rules that go into it, especially depending on where you're located as well and where your customers are. So we're not gonna be able to cover everything, but we're hoping to cover as much as we can. No, we're, we're covering everything. <laughs> okay. We're, we're going to be here for the next three days, nonstop, uh, just buckle your seatbelts. Yeah. But, so, so the subscription model, though, is not, it's nothing new. You know, I mean, obviously, I don't know how far back you could go, but you could go back to at least newspapers and periodicals, right? And then, and then I think where, where you can start seeing the kind of subscription box kind of related aspect is, what was that back in the day where you'd, you'd pay X amount? Uh, was it uh, Columbia? Columbia House? Columbia House. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right. And that that seems to like where things really started to transition into something a little bit more clever when it comes to certain products being mailed to you on a monthly basis, right? Yeah, I mean that. Well, we'll, we'll get into that as well, but that was a little bit of trickery involved in that. But uh, right, but yeah, I mean that's that's definitely one of the earlier adopters. But yeah, I think you like you said newspapers. That's that's what again. That's what I said from the beginning. It's it's something that you know people might associate with one thing, but it's really across the industry, pretty far reaching in terms of you know, different services in addition to the goods. Right. But I think one thing that has changed is that, I mean, we just have to say it's plainly, it's the internet, right? When someone would walk into your store, you would have an interaction with that customer. You know, even if you had all the legal protections and things like that, it was just different, right? Because it was face-to-face. If, if there was an issue with the you know, product or service, there was that kind of human interaction. Now it's like on the internet, the, the stakes are just so much higher, right? Because first of all, there's, you know, there's this wall of a computer in front of you. So all your customers feel protected. And frankly, even businesses feel protected to be a little bit more flexible at how they do things. And so if someone has a complaint and you know, they're upset about it. They're going to blast you online. It's very easy now. Any marketing material, once you put it up, it's there forever, right? I mean, people can access it through archives and so forth versus if you put it in a newspaper, it's pretty much, you know, it's, 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 it, it has a very limited distribution, right? And so the, the stakes are just so much bigger. And so that's, that's what's really we're going to focus on is, is how this has created a whole different world of legal issues for subscription-based businesses. 
Yeah, we're, we're not breaking any news here that the online aspect is a game changer. Like you said, there's from a, the, the interesting thing is from a customer service standpoint, because, you know, if you're looking online versus in person, an actual physical store, somebody comes in and complains to you in the store. You know, I mean, it's probably something you're going to rectify immediately, but if you don't, what what's really the worst that's going to happen? Right. As opposed to online where, you know, someone might complain and you might not even, and you might not, do it do anything about it immediately you might not do anything at all but if somebody wants to do something about it online it's it's probably worse than this you know someone in, in person complaining about so it's an interesting kind of dynamic with that like you said it's really the the rules now that are in place for any sort of online business in, in this industry are way more than just your typical online or your in, in-person retail store so um you know, there's, there's a few things in play. There's a few different areas, I think, kind of key areas for this. And we kind of break them down into three different segments here. Market, marketing compliance, terms and conditions, and then privacy policy. Yeah, and that, that covers quite a different things, but I think that's a good way to, to break it down. And marketing compliance, I think, is the first thing that comes to mind. And, and you mentioned it with the Columbia. Is it Columbia Records? Columbia House, Columbia so, Record, Columbia, or Columbia House, some something that of, yeah, the, the, they're a classic example, right? This is before the FTC really got involved in these kinds of businesses, but you know the subscription model for them, and let's again, let's just be be plain about it. Their model was getting people to sign up for some free records here and there, and relying on that negative option, right? Relying on that inertia that. People are going to keep paying and in some ways making it difficult for them to terminate, not being exactly clear as to how the auto renewal works and, and, and all that stuff. And because of businesses like them, and, and then later on, you know, in the early 2000s, when things started to go online, that's when these auto renewal laws really started to go into effect and where the FTC got involved and now pretty much Almost every state um, has some kind of similar version to this, if not analogous to some kind of auto renewal protection for consumers. Yeah, it, it is. Uh, it is. It is Columbia House, by the way, which filed for bankruptcy of 2015. Um, so, yeah, it's uh, you know, like you say, they kind of the, the negative option billing, or and they weren't the only ones that are doing it. I know I've def- in the past where you go to a store and you check out and they offer you to go, oh, do you want two free uh, magazines? It's like, well, that's <laughs> free? a good that, deal. That's great for, for free. And then you, you know, you sign up and you get it and then you're, you don't read through the terms and conditions and you get locked into some thing where every month they bill you X amount and until you cancel and they might make the cancellation difficult to do and all these different things. So the, the rules that have been implemented since then are, are very consumer friendly or way more consumer friendly than, than in the past where, you know, these companies could get away with. I, I don't think that's a reason that Columbia house went into bankruptcy. I just think that no one was no, buying yeah, CDs they, anymore. They, they corrected their practices well before then. It was probably, yeah, it's probably because of CDs. But also another one of those was um, it was those free credit report companies. Like basically, in order to access your credit report, there was the official version, which you can access your you know the credit reports from the three bureaus once a year. But then there was other ones that would say free, and you would 
you would get it, but you would have to put your credit card number because in order to verify or what have you, but they would use that credit card number to then start charging you in the fine print for some service that who knows what it was, credit monitoring or whatever. And of course, people wouldn't discover it till later, like, hey, what's this $40 per month charge on my, on my credit card? And that was, that's their business model. I mean, and that, so that's one example. Also, the, the supplement industry really got into this quite a bit. I mean, they, they really exploited this kind of hole in the law until it was really uh, highly regulated. Yeah, and that's you know these it takes those bad apples to get things corrected. So, like I said, luckily the for consumers it's it's shifted. And really, I mean for businesses, it's not like it's significantly worse. It's just that you have to be in compliance now. And you know, as long as you're doing things the right way, then there shouldn't be a problem. And when I say doing things the right way, you know the you know going back to the three kind of areas I said before, if we're looking at marketing compliance. Just be truthful. Don't don't misrepresent things. Don't try to be tricky in what way you market it. You know that piece is pretty straightforward. We'll just go over this real quick. Terms and conditions just need to be very craftily worded and have to be very tight in the sense that you know you want to make sure that there's from the business's perspective, you want to make sure that you're providing what you have to from a legal perspective for the consumer, but also giving yourself enough room to to operate in the way you want to. And then for privacy policies, it's just you know, compliance. So those are kind of the three words I associate with those three different areas, but we can dive deeper into those. Right. So the major aspect of complying with the auto renewal aspect in your subscription-based business is being clear and conspicuous as to how your subscription model works. We've, we, we've, we've done articles about this. We've actually focused you know, a whole podcast probably on this, I'm, I'm sure, at least once. And so we're not going to go into too much detail, but if, if you can remember two words, clear and conspicuous, then you're pretty much most likely going to be on the, on the right side of things. Now, each state is different. I mean, there's some, there's some specifics here, but it almost seems obvious because it's like, look, if your customer didn't realize that they were signing up for a subscription, then there's going to be other problems anyway, especially nowadays with chargebacks being so prevalent, yeah. these kinds of things and bad reviews. It's in your best interest anyway, let alone you know, being compliant with the FTC regulations and other state law. It's funny you say it should be obvious. I would say it should be clear and conspicuous, but I mean, I guess right. that's... A... <laughs> all right, all right. <laughs> but no, but that's... I mean, those whether your state uses those exact words or not i mean that that is the that is you know what to follow and really it doesn't matter if you know if that's that's california's language and if you sell to a customer in california which i mean you probably do if your business has sales then then yeah it needs to follow that standard and like you said it's clear and conspicuous of the terms and those terms are predominantly the the auto renewal terms, so so consumers understand that their subscription is going to roll over every period, typically every month for a lot of these. And then any you know any material terms that are going to apply to consumers, and then the cancellation piece as well. Just you know all all that needs to be in there, and the consumer basically needs the bottom line is they need to understand that every month they're going to be billed for X amount of dollars, 
and they need to know that or they need to be provided with how they're going to, if they want to, how they can cancel that subscription. And there's, a, there's way more to it than that, obviously, but that's kind of the, the first level of compliance. And if you're not even doing that for a subscription-based company, then you're probably off on the wrong foot, way off on the wrong foot, I should say. Right. And, and, if, and you mentioned California. If, if you are U.S.-based, being compliant with every state and going, there are some 50-state surveys that you can you know, Google and, and go through. But we talk about California a lot on this podcast. I mean, there's multiple reasons. One is that we obviously practice in California among other states, but also California and I would say next, maybe New York. These states are always in the forefront when it comes to legislation. They pass a ton of law every year, good or bad. That's what it is. And so a lot of regulation. And so if if you want to have an understanding of where law is going, you, you tend to look at California and how the law works. If you are offering goods or services to California residents, you have to comply with California's auto renewal law, which is going to be more restrictive than the, the laws and the federal law or the regulations of the FTC. And so are you going to have a different set of uh, procedures for California customers and otherwise? No. So California is going to be the most conservative. And so they, they require a couple other things. I mean, I still say it's the same thing, clear, conspicuous, but that mentioned it, like you need affirmative consent, you know, that, that whole negative option is, is not going to work. You need to send acknowledgments as, with, with specific terms in it and, and all these different things. And again, we can go into detail about it on, a, on another episode, but the point being is that it's, it's not as simple as just implementing something that you think is correct, it requires, or, or seeing what other people do, right? You have to actually take efforts to figure out what the law is. Yeah, we'll get to the other big California one later in the the episode with the uh, the Privacy Act. But but yeah, I mean, it's, it's, there's, again, there's, there's way more to it than three simple, three steps, but for, you know, kind of the, the things to always remember, clear and conspicuous, affirmative consent, from the uh, from the the user the purchaser the user and then uh, acknowledgement so acknowledging the the consumer should be acknowledging acceptance of the terms the cancellation piece of it if oh here's another one too I don't think we've mentioned yet and this is relatively new for California but if you offer any sort of free trial or any sort of like discounted rate at the beginning you need to have some you need to have the consumer. Uh, essentially agree or consent to being charged the full price, whether that be from the free trial, from a discounted price before doing so. So you can't just say, uh, you know, it's kind of what I said earlier, I guess I didn't, wasn't thinking about it. The, the magazine thing, Oh, two free magazines. That sounds good. And then, you know, a month later, I'm not going to get billed, you know, 1999 for some sort of magazine subscription that can't happen online anymore. Cause you, you need to actually have very explicit terms of, you know, once this free trial ends or once this um, discounted reduced rate ends, it's going to transition over to this and then also get the consumers to acknowledge and consent to that. Yeah. And, and I think that's part of the, the more new restrictions California added within the last year on top of what's already already on there. So and, and that's going to keep happening. Like like Matt said, California is passing more law and it's it's and I'm telling you, other states are going to follow this trend, but you're going to have to follow it anyway if you're doing any business with California. And, and that's what happened with eHarmony, right? I mean, eHarmony 
is a classic case. They they obviously do business. I think I'm pretty sure it's worldwide, if not this at least nationwide. And they got in trouble with California. The California state actually went through a whole lawsuit. They entered into a settlement agreement where eHarmony paid at least a million dollars restitution to California customers and another, you know, one or two million in in fines, et cetera. And they're not the only high profile company. Big companies get into trouble with this issue. And so you're a small guy, like there a lot of these California or state specific laws do not have this private course of action if you violate these terms for the most part. That's not true every time. And so often if you're a small guy, it's it's not going to be as a big risk. But as soon as you get a bigger, you get a target on your back, it's easy money to enforce for for these states. And it's just like it'll if if you're in a growth period, for example, it could really kill your business. And and I've seen it personally. I've seen seen businesses really spend a ton of money on legal fees and so forth just because they they made a mistake on, you know, very early in their business. Yeah. I mean you can Type type it into Google and find a handful of of big companies that have had to correct this and and change the way they, you know, basically change their terms of of service here. So it's definitely something. You no, know, no, no matter your size, I mean, you want to you want to be in compliance, but you know, it's definitely not something that you want to just kind of think about it for two seconds and move on. It's really something you need to put some thought into. Hopefully before you start making sales, but I know that's not always the case. It's sometimes it's sales first and think later, but right. it's, uh, some general advice. So, so we spoke about state law and how that applies. One thing that a lot of even attorneys forget to think about is other private contracts that you may be party to that may restrict on how you market and how you do business. And the first thing that comes to mind is your credit card merchant accounts. So do you accept MasterCard credit card payments? Because if you do, MasterCard just is, I, I think, uh, let's see, today's May, I think in April 12th, I think the yeah. rules went into effect. So we're, we're well past that. Uh, MasterCard gave their own rules as to how negative option marketing or services work. And and it's it's not dissimilar to the law, but they require things like explicit consent, multiple acknowledgments, and ease of cancellation, and then a, a whole handful of other specific rules. So now this is MasterCard's not any state government, but of course, they're a huge player in, in commerce. And if you're taking credit cards, you're most likely taking MasterCard. And so MasterCard and Visa, I'm, I'm, I'm leaving out Visa just for sake of some simplicity, but Visa has its own rules as well. But MasterCard just recently announced there, so it's more topical. And so here now, you have to comply with that set of rules as well. And so it's it's in it, it can get very complicated, but at the same time, maybe I'm maybe because we're I don't know Matt, maybe because we're just in it. But a lot of it's obvious, right? It's like you, you it's part of the customer service to just be very transparent with them as to what's going on. You're not trying to trick them for their money, no, right? And I, I don't think it's really that dissimilar from the rules. I mean, for at least going back to the California ones, the rules are already in place. I mean, having to get consent for when you'll change it, when you'll charge the card, the amount you'll charge, how to cancel service, having to you know be clear again. I mean, it's not anything that's that's different, really different from what we were talking about before. But 
you know, it's just another consideration. And like you said, it's, you know, all these businesses, if they have the, they have the card on file and they're, they're charging it every month. I, they're going to be have, they're going to have people with MasterCards. I mean, there's just no, no way around it unless you, you know, want to give up part of your business, I guess. Right. And so, yeah, the, it's and going back to what I was saying earlier too, the, the free trials aspect of it. I mean, that's, I think that's another thing. Oh, let me step back one second. My guess is the reason they started doing this was they probably were MasterCard was probably dealing with a lot of chargebacks or contests on things. Cause you have a consumer who didn't realize that they had a free trial that converted into a, you know, a paid subscription and they were, you know, whenever they discover it, they start chargebacks, company, the companies find it, et cetera. They were probably dealing with a lot of that. And they said, all right, we just need to change the way we're going about things. And right. these are the new rules. So we don't have to deal with this anymore. And now we can just point to these rules anytime that something like this comes up. I think that's exactly what happened. You know, uh, the the prevalence of chargebacks in this industry in specific, you know, without without going into details because we've had clients like this and we've seen it in different capacities, but we've seen it where literally companies had so much problem with these chargebacks because they're, frankly, their business model was such that it depended upon inertia, right? This, uh, of people signing up and and just getting them to charge every month that that they had to keep creating new LLCs with different individuals to create new merchant accounts in order for them to keep perpetuating their business because the credit card companies would shut them down and then they'd create a new LLC, et cetera. Yeah. That was literally their business model. So it's a little late, but it's a little, it's a, it's a reaction to businesses like those. Yeah. You know, we, we definitely had those conversations. I mean, we'll, I'm sure you can guess what type of, some of the goods that are probably getting sold on that or services, but it's, uh, yeah, you know, run into issues with your merchant account and then have to find another way to, <laughs> to keep doing business. But on the other side, I mean, we, we've definitely talked with companies too, that we're, you know, trying to do things the right way. And we're basically met with, you know, the opposite side of the equation of just consumers that were trying to, you know, scam businesses and try to get something for free. And then they know they can just, I don't know how this, this probably affects their personal, you know, relationship with their, their credit card, but you know, they, they get something for free they charge back. They have a good feeling they can win it and just go about it that way. So it's, there's legitimate and not so legitimate cases, but it's uh yeah, I think this is, this is definitely a step in the right direction and just another, you know, again, I don't think it's too much more on the plate for, for businesses that are dealing with this sort of model just because it's, you know, if you're not already in compliance with these MasterCard rules, then you probably aren't in compliance with the rules that you <laughs> that are already in place, you know, from other states and federal law. Right. All right. Let's talk about privacy policies. I mean, this is again, this is a topic we've covered a little bit in the past, and 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 I, I remember doing old episodes or articles about this, and and I think we've always been kind of dismissive about it because it's like. The old rule of thumb was that, look, you have one and it's not a big, just make sure you follow it. It's become a lot more complicated than that. In fact, there was a time where, well, we'll, we'll get to that. I mean, as far as the requirement to actually have a privacy policy, it, it, it was just good practice. Uh, for, for, for the most part, there wasn't a lot of law that actually required it. But now there are a few states that require it, but there's no federal law, for example. And so basically, if you 
collect any personal information from California consumers, again, there's that California again, right? Then you need a privacy policy. And if you collect personal information from other certain states that also require it, then you have to follow those rules too. But again, we're going to stick to California. It's an easy way to do a catch-all because there is no federal law on this that to be able to tackle it uh, from a global perspective. Yeah, there, oh, no federal law. There's some international law we can, we'll get into later. Right. But yeah, I mean, it's again, if you're doing business online, you you're, you're going to have <laughs> people that are from California, and so you're, these are going to have to be the compliance. So you need to have the privacy policy in place. There's a few things you need to do, but well, more than a few. But there's there's certain you know what I would say is go go look at a go look at various privacy policies for companies. I mean, some of them are depending on what type of you know what what they're doing with your data or your your personal information you know you can see you can get a good idea for what they're doing with it by looking at the length of the privacy policy right you know some of them are, are relatively short and that you know generally means they're not doing anything too crazy but if you look at the lengthier ones or you know have all these different this huge outline of stuff i mean there's probably something going on there which again I mean, could be completely legal. It probably, you know, might be, and probably is for a lot of them. But the way they do that is because they know most people are not going to read the privacy policy and are not going to, you know, do anything about it. So they, you mentioned the inertia aspect before. I think that also applies here. It's like, well, well, I don't know if it's inertia. I think it's just, you know, not blindness, but, uh, you know, I don't know. Laziness. People don't, you know, people don't read what they sign. And, and I mean, that's, Lawyers don't either. I mean, even lawyers, you know, it's like, it's not, people think like only lawyers read those terms and conditions. No, it's, it's, it's a personality, you know? I mean, only until like maybe the last, you know, five years or so has Facebook, uh, these other social media companies really received a lot of scrutiny over their privacy policies, right? Because in, in the past, like it, it was never an issue. And they were in the past, they were incredibly complicated because so long as you told you disclosed what you were doing, you could pretty much do whatever you want, right? But now it's like there's actual, specifically for companies like Facebook, if you make a change to your privacy policy, there's, there can be repercussions, right? And there's also another move to, and again, we, we'll talk about how this may be changing both internationally and, and, and locally, but typically there's not a mandate as to how to draft your privacy policy, but there is a movement now culturally to make sure that your privacy policies and terms and conditions for that matter are actually readable by a human being or at least a layman who can it actually makes sense. I mean, some of these privacy policies are so convoluted, even in, convoluted in the sense of the length and the complexity that even an attorney who is, has a trained eye takes quite a bit of time to figure out what's, what exactly is going on as well. Yeah. I mean, that's, it's nothing new, I suppose, but, but yeah, I mean, it's, again, we're steps in the right direction. My, in my general rule or my general, if I have to give two rules for a privacy policy, it's pretty simple. It's do what you say and say what you do. I mean, that's, that's really what it comes down to is, you know, just whatever you're going to do predominantly with the, the website, the user's personal information. information. Yeah. You know, disclose to them. I mean, now it's a requirement, but disclose to them you know, what you're going to do with it. And then, you know, whatever rules or whatever guidelines you have in there, just follow them. I mean, it's, you know, obviously there's more to it than that just to be legal, hundred percent legally compliant. But, you know, if you're doing both of those things, you're, you know, 
pretty far along on you know making sure everything's up to speed. And and it, and it's really easy to fall into traps because uh, people will copy and paste privacy policies, um, which is you know not the worst thing in the world. I mean, I don't know a lawyer that drafts everything from scratch either. I mean, everyone's kind of working off previous drafts, but you know, when you're doing that, if you end up doing like, for example, if you end up selling your business and you, in, in exchange of selling that business, you also sell that data that may or may not be a violation of your privacy policy. Right. Or when it comes to sending spam, like I, I see so many privacy policies, we're not going to send you spam, but then they don't have the proper uh, consent for in, in the Can Spam Act or the privacy policy to start sending you newsletters, right? So it's like you really got to know what what what's in your privacy policy and be careful about copy and pasting. Yeah. So do you want to get into the which one do you want to do first, GDPR or the California one? That's a California Consumer Privacy Act. That's not in effect yet. Both stress me out. But let's 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 do GDPR first. Okay, that's since something that since it's live. I think, yeah, it's yeah. I mean, GDPR was it was about this time last year, right? That everyone was talking about it. A lot of very bad information or incorrect information was being. I remember at the time being sent out at that time. But you know, I don't know how many calls we got about do I need to be GDP, GDPR compliant, right? And so there's basically two questions you need to answer. Do you collect information, personal information, and personal information has a definition from European Union residents, or do you offer goods or services to European Union residents? If you do, welcome to the European Union because you have to comply. Yeah. <laughs> and I think that was a lot of the the initial thoughts was like, oh, this is something not even my continent, so I don't need to worry about this. But no, it's uh especially if again, it's not it's not difficult at all to sell to somebody in the European Union, like to have one customer in the European Union. So it's, you know, I, I think at all of our subscription-based companies that we've worked with have have had sales there. I guess I'm not 100% sure that's the case, but, you know, I, I think most, if not all of them have. So it's very easy just to fall into this, you know, you have that and then you have to comply. And it's, I mean, talk about, you, you talked about having to read the privacy policy, you know, some privacy policies can be daunting. I mean, navigating the GDPR is, is a whole nother animal. And so it depends on a few things. It depends on, you know, the type of, of information you're collecting. There's certain types of more sensitive pieces of personal information where it requ has different requirements and there's a whole slew of different laws. So we're not going to go incredibly deep into this just because yeah, I mean, it would, yeah, it would take an, it's a whole nother whole presentation in itself just to go into GDPR. And the thing is, if you want to learn about it, it's frankly not even, I'm, I'm not even sure how worth it is, worthwhile it is to even do for us to do a podcast or article on GDPR because it is, it is so technical and so specific to how you're doing business. Like we're going to go over some general rules and I think you should be aware of this from a conceptual perspective. But beyond that, like I, I really do advise getting outside help for this. It, it's not something you want to undertake on your own. Yeah. There's, and there's plenty of, people that that work in this field so or different right. companies so it's it's definitely out there if you need if you need that extra uh, assurance so let's why don't we just go over kind of the basic rights under the gdpr basic rights for yeah 
for a user. I guess one thing we should say too is, you know, it's, this isn't a situation where, you know, you don't comply and, you know, who cares what our slap on the wrist. There, I mean, there's some pretty substantial penalties involved depending on the circumstances. So I, I would encourage everybody to, you know, try to, or to follow this, follow these rules or these guidelines, because it's not, not just something minor. That's, you know, it, it could be pretty significant, but okay. So the kind of the basic rights of the GDPR, I'm going to go one word real quick, and then I'm going to highlight a couple I think are, are the most important. So access, forgotten, portability, informed, correction, restrict, objection, notify. So I think the, to me, you might have a different opinion. To me, the, the biggest ones, the, the ones to really highlight the right to be informed and the right to be notified, which I guess shouldn't be of any surprise. I mean, the the right to be informed means that, you know, in the privacy policy, it's going to contain for the, for the user, it's going to tell them again, what you're, what the site's doing with their personal information, who, who they're disclosing it to all the different uses they're, they're applying it with. So, that obviously has to be in there. And then the right to be notified. The big one of this is if there's any sort of compromise or breach, you know, the notification aspect of it. And we're going to touch on this later. So I don't want to go real deep into it right now, but those are kind of the two, the two ones I've really highlighted. It's kind of the tier one, but I don't know if you've other ones you feel strongly I, about. Well, it depends. Like from a consumer's perspective, I think those are probably the most important, but from a business perspective, I think the portability aspect of making the data portable and also making it so that you can restrict processing or some kind of specific change in how you deal with data for a specific consumer, those two two or three aspects of the GDPR makes it very difficult to implement because just from a technical perspective, right? Even the right to be for, this, this right to be forgotten and to restrict and and all these things and like you have to create a whole separate system in order to, or not a separate system, but it, you have to, you have to add to your system to be able to deal with these kinds of issues. And if you're, if you have a lot of data, and if you get a lot of these requests, that's not something that you could easily do manually. And so it's there's a technical requirement in that. So th- that's how I I look at it. But of course, from a consumer perspective or a user perspective, I think you know you're right. The the right to be informed as to how my data is being used and if there's, and to be notified if there's some compromise. I mean, that, that, I, from my perspective, that's a basic right, right? I, I think that's, that makes sense. I mean, I, I am a little critical of the GDPR. It, it is a pretty extreme legislation. I wouldn't be surprised if it gets tailored a little bit as it starts to be, these, some of these concepts starts being implemented in the US, but you know, the European Union it is kind of had its, has its own culture when it comes to privacy. But we've seen like, for example, when Euro, Europa came out, which is that whole cookie compliance, we've seen how that uh, all of a sudden we, you start going to websites and you get this pop up that basically says there's going to be cookies on this website. And, and, and it's like, yeah. most users are going to just accept it. And frankly, it's more of an annoyance than anything. And GDPR basically reinforced that. If anything, they, they, <laughs> they made it more difficult. It's, it, there's, I think there's literally like one section that deals with cookies under GDPR. It basically, I think if I recall, it basically specifies what kind of information can be stored and, and how that ties into GDPR. But, you know, 
and and even these cookie compliance uh, pop-ups are not even compliant many a times because if you have a if if again if you're if if you if the European Union law applies to you, we've talked about that. Then if you're collecting cookies that's uh, storing private information or something to that effect, you need to give prior informed consent. And that means that if you have one of these, and I see this all the time, you see a pop up that says this page uses cookies. And then it gives an option to say okay, but it doesn't say doesn't give you the option to decline. That is not okay. Like in fact, from a technical perspective, until the user presses okay, there shouldn't be a cookie saved on saved on the user's computer. And so a lot of people don't realize that when they're implementing this, they're like, okay, I'm just going to give a pop up and and for them to press okay, and and then we're just going to automatically load the cookie. But no, you have to actually code in. To make sure that the cookie isn't loaded until there's consent, which is again a, a totally different concept, and frankly, both from a technical perspective and fr- frankly from a user user perspective, I find it very annoying. Like most people don't care about the cookies, but you know some people do. I suppose I don't know. Yeah, it's funny. I I went to some countries in the the EU this earlier this year, and you definitely <laughs> it's like every site go to now all that stuff pops up. I mean, you, you see it here in the U S but it's like, every, yeah. it's like way over all over the place there. And, you know, it's just, you know, it's funny to, to see that and, you know, but that's how it's supposed to be. I mean, like you said, there's, it's, it's probably more of an annoyance a lot of times, but you know, it's guidelines that need to be followed. So you no, know, don't yeah. make sure it's, it's done correctly I, from the business perspective. I mean, I get it in the sense, like, but it's almost like 10 years too late, right? In the sense that maybe 10 or 15 or even 20 years ago where, where people didn't realize that when you went to a site, they could save a file, call it a cookie on your, in your browser directory or what have you. And others, not only that site, but other sites could access that file again later, right? And that allows them to track you from site to site. If there's a coordination between different websites, I mean, it, it could get really sophisticated to the extent that that's how you, you get those stories where these websites know that you're getting married before even you do, or, or you know, uh, or, or what have you, right? Yeah. Because I, I remember we talked about it. Like, yeah. we started seeing engagement rings ads everywhere just because you know, at, you know, it was <laughs> after we got engaged, right? And so. And that, and that was a long time ago, but now it's like, that's, that seems to me that's pretty well, most people understand that. And of course, there's plenty of apps and ways to prevent cookies being loaded to your computer. And you can, you know, use private browsing and VPNs and these kinds of things. And people, people get it, but I don't know. I mean, I, I guess from, I, I get annoyed because from a technical perspective, like, you know, I like to code on the, my free time or what have you. And it's like, well, you know, why, like, it, it just seems like an extra step that's so unnecessary. Yeah. You know? Yeah. No. Well, do we want to get into the California Consumer Privacy Act? Oh, yeah, I do really quick. So we, we did touch on whether GDPR applies to you, but one of the ways that you can think about avoiding it is that th- there are some guidelines on whether it applies to you. And I know we made it simple into two questions, but you should know that just having a website, for example, is, is that, that doesn't mean automatically just because European residents can access that. That's not enough. But other things are coming to play. Like, for example, if 
you're selling products or services and you specifically state that, yeah, we ship to the European Union or we accept euros or other, other currencies or, or even languages. If you're, if you're a US-based website, but then you also are able to access your website in French or Spanish, uh, Spanish uh, depends, but other lang- or Italian, but other European country languages, that also leads, leads more that you're, you're actually marketing and giving access to your goods and services to European residents. So it's just something to think about that it's, it's not automatic. If you're trying to make the decision whether you have to become GDPR compliant and you want to try to avoid it, there are ways to do it legitimately. But frankly, if, if, you, if you want to do business there, then you're going to have to comply. Yeah. You know, we always say err on the side of compliant. Well, not err on the side. Of, I don't, I've never said err on the side of complying. I don't know why I said you that. You always say that. <laughs> <laughs> but I should, if, you, if you think you fall under it, then you probably do. So You probably do. Yeah. Yeah, and and but not to say that there might be a way out of it. It's just you know, you probably do, and you need to seek more counsel. Yeah. All right. Okay. Now, now we can talk about the CCPA. This also, if if GDPR annoys you, CCPA is is probably going to annoy you too. Most likely because it's more applicable. Yeah. To, uh, uh, you know, to to us uh, U.S. Uh, residents. Yeah, I mean we're we're what about six months out for it going into effect. I mean we've seen seen some stuff, but haven't seen a tremendous amount. But I think probably like with GDPR, we'll get a huge push the last couple of months. Right. Just a bit flooded, so be prepared. So what is it? Uh, it's California Consumer Privacy Act. So it's it's kind of I mean I think it's kind of a toned down version of GDPR. I mean still there's rules in place, but it's that's kind of how I look at it. So. Yeah, I, I keep I keep reading the details and the fine print, and I go back and forth. It's definitely it's definitely more narrow, but then there's some sometimes it goes a little bit beyond GDPR, but most of the time it's 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 a variant. It's a lesser degree for sure. Yeah, I mean, one of the big things is the who it apl- or what what sites it applies to is going to be far less than you know under the GDPR. Yeah, it's so we're dealing. That's the saving grace. Yeah, for sure. so. If you fall in one of these three categories, it's you're you're under it. So you're you're you have to comply. Uh, let's see, twenty five million in gross revenue. You process the personal information of fifty thousand, I think, right? Fifty thousand yep. mm-hmm. people, or and that's fifty thousand either household. They they define it, but just for simplicity's sake, just as users or profiles, yeah. so fifty thousand plus profiles. Or fifty percent of your revenue is based on the sale of personal information. So that one should be pretty obvious. I mean, all of them are obvious, I suppose. But oh, and by the way, I, we should specify it's personal information of California residents. Yes, right. So this is California law. So again, and, but so the twenty-five plus million gross revenue and the fifty percent of revenue based on sale of personal information—that's probably going to cut out most most of our listeners, right? But the fifty thousand plus personal information, I mean, it's a lot, but I can see because if you're just collecting information, they may not be customers. I can see where you could get up there pretty quickly. What do you think? Yeah. I mean it's it's especially, you know, do business for a certain amount of years. I mean, yeah, it's just it's just a numbers game at that point. I guess you could I mean, I mean, even from our law firm, I, I'm I'm thinking, okay, we've been in business for ten plus years. We probably have I can't say these are all California residents, but we probably have a few thousand, yeah. you know, 
2000 or so easily i mean yeah. we're and we're a small firm so it's like and we're and we're not in a consumer base we're keep in mind we're <laughs> we are business based so and so we're not we're not targeting consumers and and so it's like i i think that's uh easily to easily to get there yeah so generally speaking what does this cover so if you if it applies to you you need, here's what you need to let know for the, the users. Here's what you need to provide them. You need to let them know, know what personal data is collected, who it's sold to or disclosed to, if it is sold or disclosed. You need to give them the opportunity to say no to a sale. So some, similar to GDPR. Access. So again, similar. They, they need to have access to the their personal data. And then equal service and price. So I guess this might be kind of the, the, I guess, the the trickiest piece. So you can't, if somebody opts to say no to sale, or it's basically somebody kind of opts out of the normal process of what you do, you can't negatively, you can't take it out negatively against them, I guess is what I should say. Right. Yeah. Yeah. For example, like you can't charge them more or, you know, Something to that effect yeah, it's, or cancel. Yeah. It's, you know, if, if they're saying, well, I don't want my information to be sold. It's like, well, now I gotta, I gotta make up for the cost somewhere else. So I'm just gonna have to charge you more. Right. So yeah, that, that can't yeah. happen. So that's, uh, I mean, I would think that's common sense, but I guess not. Yeah. But, but if you think about it, like there's some businesses that provide free apps or what have you, or free services because in exchange, because what their product is you. Right, their products is the private private information that they're getting from you, and they have to be able to sell that. So, so this this particular law is so. First of all, a couple of things. One is that it's even though the law has been passed, we still expect some possible amendments to it because there's some draft. It, it, it's one of those legislations that happened really really quick, and so there's some drafting errors in it. Second is that there's regulations that are supposed to be implemented and drafted by July 2020, which is of course after after the legislation is passed, which is, you know, kind of a interesting concept there. And so we should expect that this everything comes becomes a little more clear because there is a lot of unknown. And that may be why, unlike GDPR, there's as much information about it. So that's one aspect. But the second aspect is that like GDPR, this is going to have a worldwide effect for companies that especially the large ones that, that fit into this category, they're, again, they're not going to create a separate process for California residents. They're going to, well, to a certain extent, uh, but they're going to implement this uh, across the board and it's going to have varying changes to specific business models. And, and the, the main one I'm, I'm curious about is these business models that are specifically relying on personal information to do their business in the sense that they're, not charging consumers or offering something for free. I'm trying to think of the, there's different ones, but I'm trying to think of an example. Yeah. I mean, I mean, and, and it may be, it may be businesses that still charge, but they still, but you don't know. Some of these businesses make a ton of money just on selling. Yeah. And if all of a sudden, like they have to notify their consumers, that's going to hit their bottom line. It's like, you know, these, these, these consumers like, well, I don't want you to sell me my information. And then, and they can't, you know, and at least in that case, like they'll, it, it'll only affect, they'll only have to comply with that request from California residents. You know, just because a law applies to you doesn't mean that a non 
California resident that requests the same thing has the same rights as a California resident. That's not the case. Okay, so we covered privacy pretty extensively. GDPR, CCPA, privacy policies in general. But what about data in general? When, it, when you're, you're storing this information, what if someone hacks into your account and there's some kind of data breach? What do you do? And this is, I, I don't know. Blame someone else. A, yeah. Blame, well, I, I was going to say is I don't know a, a prominent website that has not been subject to some kind of data breach, yeah. at least if not publicly, then most likely privately, because sometimes there may be a data breach that they may not be required to publicly disclose. But, and, it, and, and the prevalence is extreme. Ask any consultant in the technical industry, any, if you just follow the news, the ransomware is just increasing like crazy. Um, we've had personal experience with clients and, and, it, and it's not just big business. It is small business too, especially because you know why? It's a lot more crippling sometimes, right? Yeah. And there are easier targets and they pay. You know, we, we've, we've done some coverage uh, on our social media and, and, and articles about how even the most, you know, technical companies, they, they claim to be able to de-encrypt your data after a ransomware attack and this and that. But oftentimes their best solution is just to pay the ransom or pay some negotiated ransom in order to un unencrypt your files. And it's a, it's a horrible, horrible business that is just, I don't see any decrease in it. It's only getting more difficult. Yeah, because it's, I mean, the answer is because data is only getting more valuable. So it's, I mean, it's, yeah, I, I don't right. say going away. It's, it's really whether these, they can outpace, who can outpace who, you know, I mean, but, you know, find a new way to protect data new encryption is just going to be be busted so it's i mean it's or breached i mean so so what so, i mean you can't think about it from that aspect so from a business perspective like what what can you do i mean you can i think like you said the you know putting as much protection in place obviously is ideal but you know let, let's pretend that the worst case scenario has happened and your data has been breached how how do you need to respond do you need to disclose it so we can dive into that here. So, yeah, for, first thing is, is that when you get a, it's, an, it's incredibly complicated. Again, not, I think I've been repeating that over and over again for, for every topic, but. This is the um, most complicated. Yeah. And the reason is, is because every state is different. And so whether you need to disclose. And so if you have a certain number of residents or people, persons of personal information that their information has been leaked of a certain state, then you may or may not have to do that. And each state has its own definition of what a quote breach is. And you would think that's not a, <laughs> it's a unambiguous definition. But if you think about it, yeah. if a hacker comes in and takes information and then, and then posts it online, that seems pretty obvious. That's a breach. But what if they just come in and they, a program is ran and it encrypts all your data? And then it's a ransomware attack. But you cannot prove whether or not a third party actually accessed the, inf the information. Maybe they just locked it up. And so is that a breach? Well, in some states it is. In some states it may not be. So that's, that's one aspect. The second definition that you have to look at is da data. What is personal information? What is data? If, if they take a list of, of names of your customers, is that a breach? It may not be in some states. 
maybe in other states, but some some states require that okay, it has to be a combination of first and last name with an email address or if if credit card numbers and they'll have a whole list of different things. You know, California is is pretty again, pretty developed in law of that. And then lastly is how many records. If it's a if it's very few, oftentimes the breach the breach notification requirements are you know not as stringent sometimes there's like different levels like for example if you hit a certain uh, amount of records then you just have to notify the users if you hit another threshold then not only have to notify the users but you have to publish publish it on a, a news source or on your website if you hit another source then you you actually have to provide them other services like credit monitoring or identity theft protection and, and these kinds of things very quickly off topic, not too off topic, but the, the data piece, you, you don't, you don't follow basketball, but there's a post game. I follow basketball. <laughs> a, uh, Test me. A few, I don't know how many years ago. It was a few years ago. Now the, one of the coaches, it was a playoff game. They lost and he was complaining about the officiating and like the number of fouls called. And you know, in the NBA, there's been a big drive towards like data analytics and all this stuff. And he like was reading something about how like the foul discrepancy, you know, he just goes, take that for data. And there's some huge clip that's been, it gets used all the time now. Basically it's like all these people are pu pushing towards analytics and he brings up one like very basic number. Uh, not a very good story, but I just always reminded of that. So going back to what you were saying, it's uh yeah i mean i think for the the first step is to you know try to figure out what happened and then you just look and like not sort of like you were saying it's you know was it a breach going through the law essentially i mean it's it's there's no we can basically we can provide some sort of like checklist of things to do but it's you know it's it's going through that uh, system every time and figuring out what exactly happened and then whether you need to disclose it or not. And if you, you know, even if you don't, even if it's not mandatory to disclose, you still sometimes consider, should we disclose it? Because, right. you know, sometimes if it's, you know, everyone has different opinions, obviously, but if, you know, if nothing was really compromised, nothing serious was compromised and it was fixed pretty quick and, you know, you have to weigh the option of, well, should we just disclose this even though we don't have to and kind of get ahead of it? Cause if we don't, and it leaks out, so, you know, some disgruntled employee gets fired or the, some employee yeah. gets fired, disgruntled and, you know, leaks this out. Well, then it's kind of a, a PR mess. Even worse. You can get ahead right. of it. It can be a story for a day and you can be done with it. So I'm not, you know, th this isn't our space to tell people how to do things from a PR standpoint, but it's just another no, consideration. And we've had these conversations with clients. And what's funny is that, though, is that these breaches happen so often now that I'm sure everyone who's listening has received at least one email notification, something in the mail, yeah. what have you, that your data has been breached, right? And so it's like, it's almost as if like, it's part of, part of doing business and, and going through it. We've been in conversations too, where it's like, you may be legally required to do so, but look, if, if no one knows, then, you know, what's the big deal, right? Yeah. But we, we've seen high profile cases where, companies knew months prior to when actually disclosing, which there's also, that's another thing. There's also a time requirement. As soon as you discover the breach, how, how fast do you have to do it? And I've seen as little as 10 days. And I think GDPR, I, I can't remember the number of days, but it's a very short period of time, which requires disclosure as soon as you're able to find out. Very scary stuff. And I do have some tech background. And so I may be speaking a little naive here, but 
it seems to me one of the best protections is not even a legal protection, but really beefing up your tech protections. And something I keep hearing often from tech people is that of encrypting da- data. You know, this isn't a tech podcast, but I think for some reason, it because there's this there's this thought that if you encrypt the data in your databases, both in transit and in rest, as they say, there's some kind of slowdown in your transactions and so forth, and it affects performance. But when it comes to sensitive data, social security numbers, even email addresses, passwords definitely, right? I mean, that, that, seem, that seems like a no-brainer, but little things like that needs to be really considered highly. Yeah. There was one, uh, I'm sure this applies to multiple ones, but there was one somewhat recently where it's basically found out there kind of leaked that there's a data breach and they sat on it for a while and didn't, you know, it's like, were you, when were you planning on telling everyone about this? And they, I don't know, I'm sure, again, I'm sure I, that applies. I to feel them. like we've covered it. Yeah, yeah. It, it's happened multiple times because that's what will happen is they'll, they'll disclose it. And then if it's a big breach, you may get some investigations, right? Whether it's from the FBI or whether it's from like, for example, it, Speaking of what kind of information, like for example, if you hold patient health information, then breach laws when it comes to HIPAA is completely different above and beyond what attorney generals and other states require and, and state, state data breaches and so forth. So Yeah, and then the uh, other thing I'm saying about this is I would say let your, let your insurance company know about it you know, kind of right. They're your ally on this, in this. And, you know, it's, <laughs> you, you need to at least have it looked into whether what your coverage is, what they're. Yeah, and, and typically, typically you need to get a, you need to have a cyber policy for to have coverage because otherwise most policies do have an exclusion. I have seen, and I don't think it's as common, but th- sometimes there is some limited coverage on certain aspects of the breach, depending upon what damages it has caused. But in fact, remember Matt, we were, we were just talking to a client this week, like they have a lot of data online and their website is based upon holding data online. And so even though they're a small business, they got a cyber policy. It was a no brainer. And it's such an, it's, it's like any insurance, it's not a big deal until it actually, you know, <laughs> happens to you. Right. And it's, it's incredible how much it can cost. A, a, a any significant breach, the costs are just astronomical. We're talking about the cost to inform, the cost and legal costs sometimes in, in further investigations and legal defense when your consumers, if it's a substantial breach, get upset. You know, what did you do wrong and what were you, how were you negligent in, in causing the breach? Yeah. And then the technical costs and actually fixing the problem, right? Because what and, and whether it's fixing the problem or remediation in the sense like, if you have to spend a bunch of money unencrypting a bunch of files or your systems are messed up, that has a cost. And then adding additional costs and upgrading your systems to make sure you know, that it doesn't happen again, right? It's just incredible. And cyber policy is like a really a no-brainer for any businesses that have substantial data online. Yeah, no doubt. I tend to see they're not as competitive as they should be. I mean, I usually high deductibles and not, again, it depends upon what industry you're in, but yeah, uh, it's not a fun ins- insurance to buy for sure. Uh, yeah, and, and so that's kind of the general rules and guidelines to follow. But it's uh, you know, like a lot of this, it's kind of a case by case basis. So you know, it's just uh, I guess the the parting words on this are just err on the side of 
of caution and then also, you know, take it seriously and be responsive. I mean, go act as don't put this off. I mean, this is, if you have any sort of data breach, I think this becomes the priority item. And so, you know, like you were saying before, there's, you know, whether it's the right thing to do or whether it's legally required, I mean, it's, you know, you just want to make sure that you don't miss those deadlines if there are some for disclosure and and things like that. So it's a serious topic. I mean, I don't think we're, you know, it's no surprise that this uh, would be a a serious subject that people would want to, that business owner should. Yeah. We, we didn't cover and maybe in retrospect, we should is like, you know, whatever your, uh, disaster recovery plan is or not data disaster data recovery plan is and or breach breach reaction plan in the sense that you should have one there's and you kind of addressed it like there's a couple things that you need to do really quick and most of those have to do with people who you call and whether it's your lawyer whether it's your tech guys and so forth to figure out what happened and what you need to do those things need to be implemented as soon as possible yeah for us i mean obviously we we're one of the first calls for these ones that have happened. It's funny. Well, not funny, but you know, oftentimes it's, it's very funny. <laughs> it's hilarious. Yeah. One of the first things I ask is like, well, what do we, what do you know about the the breach or any like specifics? And usually there's at the very initial stages, they usually don't know, know much. Yeah, if very anything. Little. So it's like, right. You know, there was another uh, variable into the equation there, but again, it's stuff gets figured out. And you, yeah. And in my, in, in my experience, the, Initial call, it just gets worse from there because like, okay, we've had a breach. And then it's like, oh, okay, they've accessed this number of records. Oh, they've also accessed this server or, yeah. you know, it's like, and then, and then what do they do? It's like, it, it gets worse and worse as time goes on. Usually sometimes yeah. there's like, okay, they were only able to do this, but. Anyway. Yeah, that's exactly, exactly right. Most of the time it only gets worse. I've, I've had the, the opposite where. People think it's way more far reaching and then, you know, it's, it's yeah. actually not as bad, but yeah, usually you're just digging into the digging into things. So it only expands from there. And, and if you haven't been breached yet, either you don't know about it and you have, right. Or you will be soon. I mean, it's just statistically that's, that's where it's at. Yeah. And, and going back to what I said earlier too, it's, I mean, the bigger the target is, you know, the bigger you get, the bigger the target is. So that's one of the, what are the perils of having a growing business? Right. I feel, I feel a little depressed with this episode. Like it's just, it's like, oh man, like I, I feel bad for businesses for some reason. <laughs> it's like, oh, I have to comply with all. And like, and, we're, and really we're just talking about the subscription based business, but yeah, you know, especially online ones and specifically, I think yeah. it's a little depressing. Eh, not too bad, but I feel sad. We'll get over it. <laughs> okay. okay well uh, thanks for joining us yeah i think we we gave a good good summary here hopefully businesses uh there's no problems but ultimately there's probably going to be so this is the nature of it <laughs> all right very good yep. all right keep it sound keep it smart this has been the legally sound smart business show with your hosts nasser pasha and matt stop the legally sound smart business show is your weekly look at legal news and questions in the business world Legally Sound Smart Business is a podcast that is intended but not promised or guaranteed to be current, complete, or up-to-date, and should in no way be taken as an indication of future results. No attorney-client relationship is created by listening or submitting questions to the podcast. The podcast does not constitute legal advice. 
but rather is offered only for general informational and educational purposes. You should not act or rely on any information in the podcast without first seeking the advice of an attorney. The opinions expressed in the podcast reflect the views of those individuals and do not necessarily represent the views of any other individual or business. For more information about the Legally Sound Smart Business Show, visit LegallySoundSmartBusiness.com.